It's hard to stay hopeful when everything is so uncertain. But every year, Wired looks to 25 people, artists, business leaders, scientists, and visionaries, who we believe are trying to make things better. We call them the Wired 25. Now, in the past, we've even done a multi-day festival, gathering everyone in one place. But this year, Wired 25 is going remote. We kicked off our first virtual Wired 25 event last Wednesday. And so on this episode of Get Wired, we're sharing an interview from our opening day. And that interview is with director and screenwriter Nia DaCosta. You might have heard of Nia from her breakout film, Little Woods, which earned her critical acclaim. Her next film is a revival of a 1990s horror classic, Candyman. It's been generating a lot of buzz, both because Nia is attached to it and because she collaborated with Jordan Peele on the script. She's also reportedly directing the next Captain Marvel movie. Of course, if there's anything we've learned in a pandemic, it's that it's hard to plan things. And that goes for Hollywood, too. The release of Candyman has been delayed twice now this year. But that's not stopping Nia from making moves and sharing her vision for the future of storytelling. And so for Wired 25, Nia sat down with Wired senior writer Jason Parham to chat about the relationship between horror and racism in Candyman and the future of cinema in a post-COVID world. But first, here's a quick clip from Candyman's trailer. Candyman. The urban legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. Who would do that? Candyman. 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 I am the writing on the wall. Hi, everybody. I'm Jason Parham. I'm a senior culture writer at Wired Magazine. Welcome to Wired 25. I'm joined today by a great, great talent of ours, Nia DaCosta. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we just saw the trailer for Candyman, and I'm dying to know, were you a fan of horror films growing up? I was a huge fan of horror films growing up. Um, I would go to my grandma's house after school and I would turn off all the lights before she got back from work and watch like Tales from the Crypt and like any horror movies I can get my hand on. Um, and yeah, I was super, super into them. And Candyman was one of the big ones that loomed very large in my childhood. But before I even saw it, I was being dared to say it um, in the mirror, his name <laughs> five times <laughs> in the bathroom at school, which I refused to do, of course. Was there anything about the original that stood out in your mind as a child growing up that you took into making the film? Oh, man. Yeah, I think the, the first film was so unique and it's the style is really specific and, and different. And it really feels like a bit of a fever dream, you know, uh, watching this woman's descent. And, and Candyman, of course, Tony Todd as Candyman is so iconic and such an impressive new kind of villain. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. And so, yeah, just really thinking about him as this iconic character and wanting to pull back the layers and expand more on, on what that actually means and who Candyman is, what Candyman is, was what I wanted to bring into this version. 
So your version does so much visually, structurally. I got to see a preview of it. It's amazing. Oh, Talk to me a little bit about your choices. Um, how did you go about making this version your own? Right, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's like a million little decisions, you know, every day. But for me, what I love so much about the original is how unique it is, is how specific it is. It is a filmmaker's vision. And so insofar as I was able to, I really wanted to make this feel like a very specific, unique, visually interesting film and not just like a horror with some people dying and who cares. Right. And the other thing, other thing is, you know, we really wanted to expand on the mythology. So from, you know, the very first draft of the script that I read before I officially was on the film, there was this kernel there of like, okay, there's more to Candyman than just this guy named Dan Robitaille. There's more to the idea of Candyman. And so that too, I think was in thinking about the first film, what I wanted to bring to this one, just like more. <laughs> You collaborated with Jordan Peele on the script, who many consider the Hitchcock heir apparent. <laughs> what was it like working with him on this project? It was cool. It was really cool. I think my favorite part of the process with Jordan was just sitting in a room together and like shooting ideas back and forth and seeing how his mind works and just like watching him work and, and, and just being able to create something. That's always my favorite part of the process when, when collaborating, especially on our, uh, at the writing stage. So yeah, it was really cool. Like I'm a huge fan of, of Get Out and, and I love Key and Peele. So um, <laughs> Um, sometimes I'd like reference a skit and he'd be like, that's a real deep cut. I'm like, I've watched it so many times. But yeah, it was really fun. It was great. So the movie merges the past and the present and threads so many themes together. Police brutality, mm -hmm. a history of lynching, gentrification, sort of white theft of black capital. Um, what I like mm -hmm. to call sort of everyday horrors or social horrors. So why do you think the horror genre, which you're working in, is such a right vehicle to bring attention to these injustices? I think what's great about horror is that you can layer like the horror, the physical horror of like being in a space and being worried about someone about to get, you know, killed by a killer or, or haunted, in, you know, in a haunted house or, or any of those things. And you can just easily lay on the like personal horrors, real life horrors onto these, these, um, these tropes as like metaphor. And what's, what's great about horror is that horror stays with you after you leave the theater. I mean, you can say every great film stays with you, but horror really, like, it's in your psyche. It, like, gets deeper into, into your brain, I think. Understanding how horror of a ghost or, or a serial killer or whatever can be as um, tangible for people who don't understand, like, black trauma, black horror, black pain. Um, it can be as tangible for them in, in the moment they're watching the film. And hopefully when they leave the theater, it's sitting with that, um, not just like the, oh, like, I, ghosts, but also with, oh, like real pain of people that um, are part of my community. So that's what I think is useful about horror in that context. But there are so many, of course, ways to, to tell the stories that we're telling. Right, so speaking of the so many ways to tell the stories, I'm curious in what ways do you see Candyman being a bridge between sort of the original slasher trilogy, horror classics like Nightmare on Elm Street, and mm -hmm. the future of the genre with stuff like Lovecraft Country on HBO? Yeah, so I guess I'll address like the Freddy Krueger, you know, <laughs> of it. Um, Candyman himself is an iconic uh, villain. And so I think what we're able to do in this film is like pull back the, the curtain on like what makes a villain? <laughs> who, who calls a monster a monster? Who decides that? Um, that's a lot of what our story is about um, and how we, how we tell stories to, to scare each other, protect each other, um, uplift each other, and they can kind of all be the same story. The future of the genre, I think it's great that there are more, more Black voices in the genre. I like that it feels more potent, you know, talking about real life horrors um, and, and disseminating right. that, you know, further into the culture. And so I'm just excited, in particular in horror, just to see more, more of that, but also more 
different kinds of stories. You know, I love to see Black people in, in horror films and in the horror space that's not just about this kind of trauma and pain, but can also be, you know, about, about other aspects of our existence. And there's so much space for that um, in film in general, but especially in horror. I think you, you said it right too. It's like, what, who is the monster exactly in, the, in sort of Candyman? Your film is sort of almost doing that too. It's like, Mm-hmm. who it's turning it's sort of the original question on its head so yeah definitely yeah. um so there was a line in the film that really grabbed me and i don't want to give away too much so i'm just going to say it without context um mm-hmm. it goes they love what we make and not us as a creative mm-hmm. do you see that or hear that and say how can i reorient that kind of thinking with my work or is your job as an artist to find value in those systems of thought um mm-hmm. or do you take that burden of making the larger white world love and CRBD in whatever ways you can, or is the work about something else entirely to you? Mm, I think it's all those things and, and more. You know, it's, it's at once sort of, you know, just having that line in there, because a lot of people have mentioned it, which I'm really happy about. Just having the line in there is just like, I think what a lot of Black creatives and, and, you know, creatives of color think about all the time. It's like, I think in particular for Black creatives, like especially if you're like, a musician and you do hip hop or rap, you know, like hip hop's the most popular genre of music now. Um, and yet, you know, I'll go to like a Kendrick Lamar concert and hear like the white teens in the front row saying the N-word, like, you know, <laughs> rapping along. And so it's like, okay, you, you love this music, you love him, but you don't understand what he's saying. Because if you understood it, you wouldn't be out here yelling right. the N-word <laughs> um, and making like finger guns and being ridiculous. You know what I mean? And so that's what I mean. It's like you, you love this culture. You love how it makes you feel. You love, you know, the look of it. You love how it makes you feel cool. You love fucking sneakers, whatever. But you don't understand the people. You don't see the people as people. Um, they're just like there to entertain you. So that's sort of what that means. You leave the building as an artist once your art's out there. And so for me, I, I hope that I can, I can create full characters, full humans that, that the audience can empathize with. Um, so that, you know, one day it's not like, right. oh, they love what we make, but not us. It's like, oh, they love what we make and, and they understand us. Um, but I also feel like the burden of like trying to explain shit to white people is so inside of so many black films. <laughs> And I would love to eliminate that as soon as possible. So for me, I kind of, I try to come at it from the point of view of I'm giving you fully fledged characters, full human beings. I hope you empathize with them. I hope you understand them, but I, I, I just, I can't teach you how to do it, you know? So one of my favorite things that Candyman does, um, it's such a film about place and setting. Mm. It takes place in Chicago and the Cabrini Green Projects. Your debut feature from last year, Little Woods, was set in a sort of small rural North Dakota town. Both films have such a strong sense of place, almost as if these, these cities are characters themselves. Um, why is that important to you in your filmmaking? And how does like change that heighten the film exactly? Yeah, I think place is super important because your environment so influences how you feel about yourself, how you interact with your world. We're all at home right now and we really are understanding how much our homes are important to our sense of self, our sense of well-being, our neighborhoods. And so... It just has to be a part of the character uh, mm-hmm. journey, the character's study that, that I'm, I present in, in the films that I make. And then with Candyman, you know, it was so important to go back to Cabrini Green. And the fact that Cabrini Green doesn't really exist uh, in the way that it did in the 1992 film is why the film, you know, even deals with gentrification and tries to look at the many different ways that racial violence can exist and manifest in the world. So yeah, so environment's super important. It's, it's man, especially in a country like ours where, you know, like we're dealing with like redlining, housing segregation, gerrymandering. It's like so important. After the break, we'll hear more from Jason Parham's conversation with Nia DaCosta. 
They'll chat about Little Woods, her first film, her approach to making movies within the confines of certain genres, and how she tries to keep audiences on their toes, even within those constraints. Director Nia DaCosta's first feature film, Little Woods, is a modern Western starring Tessa Thompson and Lily James. Before we go back to Jason's interview with Nia, let's listen to a quick clip from the trailer of Little Woods. What went wrong last time when you got caught? I forgot to be scared because I liked it too much. Do you ever think about leaving? You're so close. Please stay out of trouble. What if I lost my insurance? The pregnancy and birth is going to be about eight or nine thousand. Closest place for an abortion, she said. Where is it? Hundreds of miles away. Where are you going to get the money, Ollie? I'll figure something out. He said if I wanted back in to come see you, so you could move, say, five hundred pills. Five hundred pills. Um, so I want to dial it back just a little bit and go back to your first film. Little Woods was your breakout hit from last year. It was about two estranged sisters in North Dakota who were sort of doing what they needed to get by to survive. How did this story come to you and, and why was it important to tell? Yeah, so that one started from me wanting to tell a story about two women living in a rural part of America and dealing with poverty. And I knew that I wanted it to, to focus on healthcare and how hard that, that access is. And because women dealing with healthcare, I knew abortion and reproductive health was going to be a really important part of it. And so I wanted to find the place in America that would be the most difficult for a character to, to obtain an abortion. And it happened to be, at the time, this part of Northwest North Dakota. And once I said it there, it's like, okay, there's the oil booms happening there. There's an opiate crisis happening there. The ratio of men to women is like four to one. You know, it's really a specific Wild West sort of place. And so that informed so much of the film. You know, the genre, the characters that we meet, how the, the sisters interact with each other and engage with each other. The fact that it was, you know, a Black main character in a majority white place. That was all informed by the place, actually. So um, that's how it all kind of came together. Just having this one kernel of an idea, two women, poor rural America, and then it, it went from there. And what was it like? Tessa has such an amazing performance. And what mm. was it like working with Tessa? Oh, it was amazing. It was so great. I mean, I got a little preview because we worked together at the Sundance Director's Lab where I workshopped a couple of scenes from the script. And, okay. and like, you're not really, like, supposed to do that thinking you're in a cast, whatever actors come out to, like, workshop with you. But she just became the character, you know. And I was like, oh, it has to be her. Um, <laughs> she's great. I love her. Over dearly, excellent actress, obviously, but also an amazing collaborator, incredibly intelligent, incredibly creative, um, and she really gives a shit. I mean, you can tell from everything that she's been doing, like, she really gives a shit. So um, it was wonderful. So what was really fascinating to me about Little Woods is, is it moves almost like, it's a, it's a thriller, but it moves like a Western a little mm. bit. Candyman is also sort of like decidedly a horror film and like social commentary a bit. Mm. Um, it's also rumored that you're working on a big superhero Marvel film. Um, <laughs> do you see genre work as a challenge or an opportunity and how so? Um, yeah, I think genre work is challenging in that it's not just about the truth um, <laughs> with genre. It also just has to be like effective. You have to kind of manipulate it. It's really psychological. You have to figure out like, you know, the buttons and like figure out how to push buttons in the audience. If it's a drama, like a straight drama, I kind of find straight drama the I don't want to say 
it's not easy, but like the easiest because right. it's really just like, okay, who are my characters? What are the stakes? Like, let's be honest. Let's tell the truth, you know? Um, but genre is great because one, people watch it. So it's usually, <laughs> um, you know, it's great just to have people watching your stuff because um, then the message or if, if there is a message even, um, then whatever you're trying to say or, you know, proliferates more, which is exciting. Um, and it's an opportunity because, because more people see it, but also because I think people know what to expect when they go into a comedy or a horror film or a thriller. And so you can do two things. One, you can lull them into a sense of security while you, you know, do your work, you know, inside of, inside of the genre trappings. And then you can also surprise them um, in ways that are exciting and thrilling for them. So it's, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think that's why it's so exciting. Do you see yourself drawn to any particular genre mm. as an artist or as a, as a director, as a creative? Like, does one speak to you more than the other? I, not as a whole, but I, I do know, like, no matter what I do, I tend to want to have, like, a lot of tension and, like, thrillerish sort of elements to it. Not in everything that I've done, but for the most part, like, even if I'm doing, like, you know, Little Woods is a Western, this is a horror film, you know, I wrote, like, an adaptation of the Nimpson play, like, I was just, like, more thriller elements, you know, like, more, like, tension, and that's really something I just really like doing. <laughs> so before we wrap up, um, I want to bring us back to the present a little bit. Mm. Um, we're all set to have a big summer release, and now Candyman is dropping next year. Many people are still kind of scared of going to the theater, getting sick in a crowded theater. I'm curious for you, how do you feel about releasing a movie during the pandemic? My ideal for the film is to come out in theaters when it's safe. Right. And so we'll see when that is. <laughs> um, um, but that's really what I want. I want people to be able to, to enjoy the film on the big screen, um, but when it's safe and when it makes sense. What lasting effect do you think the pandemic will have on the movie industry? Um, are you hopeful? Oh, wow. Um, you know, people are so fatalistic about, like, theatrical distribution whereas like theaters are dying you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um but i really think two things happen one we realize things that we don't have to do together you know which is useful for workflow and, and that kind of thing and um i think also opens up to more people getting more opportunities and then when, as it, when it comes to like theatrical i think a lot of what we learned during the pandemic is not just what we can do um without having to be there but also what we really would love to do <laughs> together yeah. and i think going to a theater is one of those things so i think like people are going to always go see movies in theaters. And I think this is a moment where it's like, oh yeah, like I would love to have the opportunity to do that again. So what we're going to see in the immediate, I feel like is a lot of things where it's like, oh, it's two characters in a house and they don't really have to be near each other. So that's the movie. Um, a lot more TV, a lot more animation, a lot more podcasts, you know, like I think it's going to be things that people can do separately, yeah. but at the same time, like movies can't exist in this, that one space so when it's time and when things are right i think things will, will bounce back but i think we'll probably be safer and more efficient if i'm being honest and then lastly what impact do you want to have on society through your work and your art oh man <laughs> um <laughs> i mean i said this from from like littlewood's times um really just want to spread empathy <laughs> and to, to present really full characters and people um to the audiences who come to see my films um Empathy, I think, is so important. And it's, it's, it's sort of like the secret backbone of society. <laughs> it's not just like, oh, if you do something bad, you're going to end up in jail or whatever. It's also like, oh, I, I care about people I don't know anything about because we're both here. We're both alive. <laughs> you know, we're both humans in this community together. So empathy is a big thing for me. I couldn't think of a better thing to end on. Thank you again so much, Nia, for speaking with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. 
There's lots more to Wired 25. Last week, in addition to Nia, we had the members of the creative collective Ghetto Gastro, Netflix's Reed Hastings, and political commentator Van Jones, alongside actor Brie Larson. Here's a sample of the opening day. A big reason why people look at food that usually comes from maybe brown, black people, not that I'm not Eurocentric, it's just an extension of white supremacy and how society values peoples and their creations. Nobody wants a film just like the one you watched last night. Okay, so <clears throat> the one you watched last night was great, but then you want to find something else that's, you know, different. We, we want something that's fresh. As a producer on this, is you're thinking about the space, about, you know, where the camera's placed, where it is in a corner, for example, so that, because you initially you want to look around and see, but then having a general focal point. So we work together um, from both of our backgrounds in, it, or in, in order to kind of streamline this so that you're getting or maximizing the impact within the experience. We saw people taking off their Make America Great hats, taking off their NRA hats and putting on those visors three and a half minutes later saying, I didn't understand before. I didn't understand what it meant to be an African-American kid in a car getting pulled over by police officers with police dogs, etc. I just had never thought about it. And all we want is more understanding. Over the next two Wednesdays, we'll also hear from Anthony Fauci, journalist Maria Reza, and Audrey Tang, the Digital Minister of Taiwan. And on next week's Get Wired, you'll be able to hear my Wired 25 interview with Nextdoor CEO Sarah Fryer. You can learn more about Wired 25 just by going to events.wired.com. And that's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Jason Parham. You can find Jason on Twitter at nonlinearnotes. Thanks to Nia DaCosta for coming on the show this week. This episode was produced by Mickey Capper, with additional production help from Anna Stitt and Alex Jerome. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown, and our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Nina Gensler Debs and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Scott Rosenfield is Wired's site director, and our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. You can find out more about the Get Wired podcast at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. Thanks again for listening.